Hi listeners, and welcome to the IM Global Podcast Series, the podcast of International Management Division of the Academy of Management. I am Luis Ricardo, and together with the members of the Membership Drive Committee, we are going to talk to scholars from the IM Division to know more about them, their research and motivations. And I should add, this podcast is one among many initiatives of the IAM division to foster research and practice of management with cross-border and cross-cultural dimension. Visit us at im.aom.org to get it started. Now on to the show. Welcome to this new episode of IAM Global. I'm your host, Patricio Duran, Assistant Professor in International Business at San Luis University. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Len Trevino. Len is SBA Communication Distinguished Professor in International Business and IB Program Director at Florida Atlantic University. He's also the president of the Ibero-American Academy of Management. Dr. Trevino got an MBA and PhD in International Business from Indiana University. He's an active researcher in multinational enterprises, FDI, institutions, gender and diversity, and cross-cultural management. Len has multiple publications in journals like Journal of International Business Studies, Journal of Management, Journal of World Business, Academy of Management Learning and Education, among others. Len, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you so much, uh, Patricia. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Len, can you tell us a bit more about yourself, such as hobbies, passions that you have? Yeah, sure. Um, when I'm not researching, I, I, I love to travel. I love to do yoga. I visited about 85 countries and counting. I want to get to 100 if I can after COVID counts down here. Um, I enjoy running, skiing, uh, anything to do with health and fitness. And I also love music. Um, what kind of music do I love? Almost anything, really. I like jazz. I like opera, uh, hard rock, and um, especially uh, alternative rock, like um, people like The Cure, The Smiths, Echo and the Bunnymen. Uh, I, I just I love all kinds of music. Oh, we have similar uh, taste in music, Alain. Um, <laughs> what have you learned personally and professionally over this pandemic period? Mm. Well, uh, it's interesting. I was scheduled to go to Italy uh, just the week before the pandemic. We, we had a consortium for undergraduate international business education conference there. And it was going to be in Rome. And I decided the day before the flight or two days before not to go. And then the next day they canceled it. So I was prescient about that. But yeah, I've learned to value friends, family those people on whom you can count during tough times. And especially for those of us who love to travel, it's been a difficult time, but certainly not as difficult as those who lost family and friends. And, um, you know, another thing, I've always known this, but I <clears throat> also came to really value research that can help disenfranchised groups and society as large. Re research that makes a difference, something that's impactful outside of the academy. Unfortunately, pandemic has not over yet. Um, what cross-cultural research can inform us about the variance in infection rates across nations? Uh, Patricio, it's uh, funny that you asked that. I imagine that you noticed a pre-publication of a study on which we've been working 
And uh, I am delighted to report that it was recently accepted at Journal of International Business Studies after about a year. So the, the title of that paper is uh, Cross-Cultural Exploratory Analysis of Pandemic Growth, the Case of COVID-19. So I, I work with a team of scholars and I, I just wanna shout out my amazing co-authors, Ratan Deer and uh, Carolyn Igri and also the associate editor, Dana Minbaeva, and two anonymous reviewers. They were very helpful in helping us to uh, make this paper uh, a better paper that we think it can help save lives if governments use our findings. So uh, what did we find? Well, in, in general, we found that a nation's culture played a vital role in its ability to curtail the spread of COVID-19 or the opposite, to facilitate its spread, providing a roadmap for future pandemics that we believe, again, will save lives and minimize the economic fallout. Um, you know, there's a, some, some specific findings. I can go through some of those. Uh, we used Hofstede's uh, cultural value dimensions, and we found uh, that collectivistic nations such as South Korea and Singapore, whose, nation, whose citizens display altruistic behavior and prioritize group goals, they experienced lower COVID-19 growth rates than individualistic nations such as the US, UK, and Italy, where people emphasize individual freedoms and personal interests. Now, while this result may appear obvious to cross-cultural researchers, what I learned is that this politician saying no lockdown or we need to lock down, it's just missing the point. It's not black and white. Uh, as some politicians would have us believe, one doesn't need to lock down completely to control the spread of a pandemic. Masks and social distancing go a long way. So we captured case data every day for the first 90-day period, and we captured uh, Oxford University has a stringency index. I should be from zero to 100. And... Um, we believe that, uh, well, let, let me just tell you what happened with the, the collectivistic and individualistics. Uh, the US and other individualistic countries should learn from past experience. Why does South Korea do so well? Well, they did well because in part, because they applied what they learned from the previous SARS academic. And we argue that all countries should attempt to unify their citizens by pointing out that adhering to pandemic control measures and a healthy economy go hand in hand. It's not one or the other. It's again, some politicians would have you, would have you believe. Um, interestingly, although collectivistic nations initially had higher case levels of COVID-19 than individualistic nations, uh, we found that government stringency, even at low levels in collectivistic nations served to curb case growth. In contrast, much more restrictive government measures are needed to mitigate pandemic spread in individualistic nations. Um, so stringent government measures during the initial phase of the pandemic were critical to slowing the increase in cases. This is very interesting, uh, Len. Among your publications, one has particular implications for our audience. 
especially PhD and junior scholars. With a group of co-authors, you explore the antecedents of non-monetary rewards in designing the first authors. Could you explain what this paper is about and what are the main findings? Yeah, um, one of the things about this paper, we wanted to understand what explained who gets to be the first author on a paper, because according to Academy of Management principles and guidelines, it's a meritocracy. The person who put in the most work should be the first author. And this is how I always evaluated this paper. And uh, my co-authors and I, uh, David Balkin was the first author, Luis Gomez Mejia, and a couple of other folks, you know, did an amazing job with this paper. But um, it's, we, we did an interview and on average, scholars tended to agree that merit is a crucial factor to assign authorship and power is the less relevant factor. However, empirically, we observed that the effect of power, so it's sort of two studies, one interview and then one empirical. Um, the effect of power on being the first author is very strong. How do we measure power? Well, those persons who were in a hierarchy or they had an associate dean position or they were a full professor with a, an endowed, endowed share title, et cetera, um, it has a significant role. The finding that power is significant in the first author study, despite the survey of the authors who indicate that merit is more important, has a subtle interpretation. An author with power based on hierarchy, expertise, or social network may, may be deemed first author by co-authors simply by being perceived as being powerful without having to use this power. So the powerful co-author may get the first author without asserting his or her power. Um, as an analogy, we can think of uh, wolves or lions who collaborate on a kill to kill an antelope. The alpha wolf, the most powerful one, gets to eat first and the other wolves get the leftovers. Do you think being the first author should matter for tenure? Uh, in my opinion, it should. <clears throat> it should because first author indicates that you have the ability to lead a research project. Now, in reality, does it? I think that depends on the school. Like I said, I've reviewed so many CVs in doing research on gender and other things. So I became really interested in that. And um, I, my belief is that a school in the top, I'm going to guess here, let's say, uh, 120, 130, and better. So one to 130, it matters. It matters. There's some places for sure you're not getting tenure unless you've demonstrated the ability to lead research projects. Len, what would be the implications of this study for junior faculty? Well, I'll, I'll address that question directly and then I'll tell you what I think is a better question. Uh, a junior faculty should stand up for themselves and demand that authors follow principles of meritocracy. In a, in a tenured and non-tenured world, this is easier said than done, but this is standard protocol for AOM publications. So that's, that's the first answer. But in general, I think it's better to ask, what are the implications for senior faculty? 
because senior faculty are, are the likely uh, people who may be taking advantage of the power um, to secure a better position on the paper. Um, so I just hearken back to my days uh, as a doctoral student under John Daniels at Indiana University. And when I finished my dissertation, John said, you can do the papers by yourself. You can have me on the papers. And I demand that I would be second author in the event that there are two of us because it's your work uh, kind of thing. So that's the, the way that I take it. But I would say we have to, to ask, what are the implications for junior scholars and for senior scholars? Do you think that naming the authors alphabetically would reduce any potential conflict among them? I don't know, uh, Patricia, that's a good question because in economics and finance, they they do go in alphabetical order. It really looks very strange. My finance colleagues tell me if they were to go out of alphabetical order, but the norm in management and marketing is to operate on a meritocracy, whoever put the most work into the project. Personally, I've rarely had a problem with this. Everybody sorts of understands who's the first author, um, so I don't argue for going alphabetical in management. I think we just uh, need to to really operate on a um, on a meritocracy and just look at it that way. I, I think it's very important that we uh, abide by the the guidelines that Academy of Management has very clearly laid out. You also explored the topic of meritocracy in the allocation of named professorships in academia. On a sample of more than 500 management professors, you found that women are less likely to be awarded named professorships or endowed chairs, controlling for research performance. Can you explain to us why? Yes, that's that's a great question. That's exactly what we tried to do when we when we wrote this paper. <clears throat> and uh, I'll again shout out my co-authors because it was a great team effort. Um, David Balkin, Luis Gomez Mejia, and Frank Mixon. Uh, we just did an amazing job with this paper. And I think the main thing that we added to what we would call sort of a glass ceiling paper is that we controlled very strictly for performance. And it's a, um, this is the main thing that previous glass ceiling papers had not done was control for performance. And in academia, this was uh, management professors at top 100 universities. It's easy to gather performance information on faculty. You just go to Google Scholar, type in a name, and there you have the, the performance. So uh, why do women face a lower probability? The, idea, this, the field that there's conscious gender bias has kind of moved beyond that. It's more of a structure what we term masculine gendered environment. So university settings, much like technology industries or law firms were created by men, for men. And uh, um, it, it, there's a lots, lots of reasons, but let me just tell you the reality of it is, is, is as follows. This is really interesting. Our empirical results indicate that the average male who has a site Cites comp score of 0 0.11. 0 0.11, it doesn't matter, just assume that number. This person faces a probability of having been awarded a named professorship equal to 
while the average female who has a sites comp score of 0 0.09, what we're saying is that yes, on average, women have a slightly lower publication record than males on average, but it's pretty close. She faces a probability of having been awarded a name professorship equal to 0.36, 36%, all else the same. So assuming the male's sites comp score remains 0.11, the female scholar would have to increase her sites comp score to 0.44, a score that is almost five times greater than her current score and four times greater than his current score to reach the same probability of holding an endowed chair. So yes, it's not a meritocracy, even though we teach about meritocratic principles in the academy. According to the results of this study, what advice would you offer to female scholars to break this glass ceiling in academia? I learned enough in doing gender research that I'm not going to offer the females any advice because they're doing amazing. They're doing what they need to do. The better question is what should administrators and universities and college of businesses do? And we would suggest, we, we made some suggestions in our paper, but the main thing is first is to establish a meritocracy and make sure it is a functioning meritocracy. Let's just start there. And um, so I have, nothing to offer, to, to advise female scholars. They're doing an amazing job and they should be rewarded as such. Let's talk about your role as the president of the Ibero-American Academy of Management. Can you explain to us its mission? Sure, sure. I, it, this is a great organization. I've been involved with this group for a long time and, and I was named president a couple of years ago and I'm I feel highly honored uh, to, to be in this position where I, I'm trying to make a difference uh, with this very important organization that's a part of the Academy of Management. So our mission is to foster the general advancement of knowledge in the theory and practice of management among Ibero-American scholars and others interested in Ibero-American issues. So we have a lot of um, Latinx, I guess is the term now, people who are involved in Ibero scholars from Spain, Portugal, Latin America, Central America, et cetera. Uh, we define Ibero-America broadly to include all of Latin America, Latino populations in North America, as well as Spain and Portugal. Uh, so moving beyond the mission, our vision is to perform and support educational activities that contribute to intellectual and operational leadership in the field of management within an Ibero-American context. <clears throat> now, this is all great on paper, but we have some amazing people who are involved with this group. Uh, the current president of the uh, Academy of Management, Herman Aguinas, he's the past president of, AO, of IAOM, uh, Luis Gomez Mejia, Julio de Castro, Carolina Gomez at Florida International University, and um, a number of other just amazing scholars. So what happens is, you know, what can we offer to, to people within who are interested in joining us? I've developed great uh, collaborative research uh, working with people 
like Luis and like uh, Herman Aguinas and others. And uh, this is the first thing. In which ways can scholars contribute to this association? Uh, we're actively recruiting members and ways that they can contribute would be on <clears throat> membership committees, doing PDWs at the Academy of Management, working on, on, <clears throat> on papers being advised by more senior scholars, uh, developing partnerships with others. Uh, like I said, I've worked with many co-authors from the Ibero-American Academy. So finding collaborative research partners, presenting papers at our biannual conference. Our conference in 2021 was canceled, but we expect to be in the Dominican Republic in 2022. So please send your papers there when you get the notice for that. Um, and um, other things would be teaching issues. How are they, how are they different uh, in Ibero-American countries versus in uh, the US and Canada and, and other places? So there's so many ways to contribute and we're uh, delighted to, to welcome new members to our group. Lynn, you have plenty of experience in IB education. What do you think will be the future of IB teaching after the pandemic? One of the things we have to figure out is how to get students doing what I would call boots on the ground international experiences. Because anytime I ask an executive who's interested in hiring a student with an international business major, which by the way, we know that international business majors over the long run make more money than those without an international business education. I have some colleagues that did this research. Um, but, we but when I ask an executive, you know, what is the single most important thing a student can do to be ready to operate in an international business setting? They say, do a study abroad or an internship or something to get in the country because we can teach everything we want. We can do lots of experiential, parts of the class, such as X culture, the uh, cross-cultural experiential simulation. It's not a simulation, it's a consulting project. We can do all these things, but we need to get students into other countries and uh, the virtual study abroad is not gonna do it. So, so we, we have to figure out a way to do that. Yeah, that would be a great challenge for the next years. So anything you want to add to this interview, Len? No, I appreciate it. Uh, it's really, I appreciate your inviting me, Patricio. I enjoy spending time with you. And uh, I hope that uh, this would, that some people may find some of the information useful. And if you're interested in Ibero-American Academy of Management, please reach, reach out to me. If you're, in, if you're interested in some of the research that I do, reach out. Uh, I learned that when I was a doctoral student, uh, I had a mentor who didn't have to help me, but he did. And so I, I love to mentor junior faculty. I love to help others with their research. And um, this is, is, is what it has to be because someone spent time with you and someone spent time with me and uh, we have to give back. Thank you very much, Len. Very sure that our audience is going to take advantage of that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> So Len, thank you so much again for your time and willingness to be part of IM Global. It has been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much, uh, Patricio. I really appreciate your, your inviting me and uh, look forward to speaking with you soon.
Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of I Am Global. If you like this episode, please like the track and share it in social media. Stay safe.